Our reading this afternoon is from Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Laura. So this is my talented, beautiful wife, Olivia. We celebrated 22 years last week of marriage. We went to Ellie's restaurant here in Long Beach, the Italian place. Maybe you've heard of it. I have a slide. It's, it's really a small place down near Orange and, and Broadway. They're on, I believe, 2nd Street. You can't find parking. Don't even try. Uh, we had to park like four blocks away, something ridiculous. But it, it uh, you know, was worth it. And that's what was so uh, surprising and wonderful about the meal. Not only was the company great, but uh, when we got there, I wasn't really expecting a lot. I didn't know what to expect. We sat down. Um, we had this for an appetizer, this roasted cauliflower dish that was, you know, have you ever had a dish where you put it, the first bite in your mouth and you're just, you know, your mouth com- becomes alive with so many flavors. It was like a party in your mouth. And, uh, and then we had a bruschetta that was wonderful, and I got a gnocchi with a pork ragu sauce. I mean, I'm getting hungry just re- retelling it. It was so uh, great. It was a great meal. And that happens sometimes, right? You have an experience that's really surprising. Uh, it surprises you. It's a wonderful experience. But sometimes uh, surprises can be really challenging. And I think reading our passage today is one of those experiences where we're really challenged in surprising ways. When we consider what Jesus is telling us here in Luke uh, 9, I want to I go through this uh, section of God's word and look at three surprises that Jesus offers us here. And the first one has to do with his identity. His identity. Jesus asks his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? He seems to be curious, uh, what were people saying about him? Uh, 
if you've read the Gospels, you know he was making quite a stir and becoming very popular. For example, we could look earlier on in Luke's Gospel in chapter 8. There at verse 4, we're told that a great crowd was gathered and people from town after town were coming to see Jesus. So it's not like he just was popular in one little area. People were coming from all over to see this man. And then later on in that chapter, uh, we're told in verse 40 that when Jesus returned, he'd gone away and he'd come back to the area. The crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. Not only were they going out to find him, they're just hanging out waiting for him to show up. They really want to see who this guy is. And then on earlier in chapter 9 here, we're told uh, that when he took his disciples, withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. For there were about 5,000 men. This is when Jesus feeds the 5,000. Huge crowds. Everybody wants to follow him, learn from him, uh, get, get a sense for who he is. Even the, the royalty of, of Jesus' day were curious of who he was. When he was arrested at one point there in Luke 23, uh, he's taken to see Herod. And we're told there in uh, verse 8, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So there were rumors going out, like, who is this guy? What's he all about? And Jesus is asking his disciples, so what have you heard? Now, the disciples give him uh, an answer that we might expect. They, they answered Jesus. They said, well, some think you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. So people are trying to understand Jesus in the lens of what they're familiar with. And that's prophets from the Old Testament or those who have come before Jesus. Now, people were wondering this sort of thing earlier on in Luke as well. If you go into chapter 7 of Luke, there's a story of a widow who loses her son. And they're mourning his death. And Jesus comes along with his disciples. And we're told that Jesus had compassion on the woman... And raised her son from the dead. And notice what happened uh, there at verse 15 and following. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. We have another example when Jesus calms the storm. If you grew up in church, you've heard that story. Jesus is with his disciples in the boat. He calms the storm. And notice what the disciples themselves, how they respond to Jesus. They, they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. No one can understand and grasp who this guy is. Who is he? And there's all sorts of opinions today about who Jesus is. Who is he really? And if Jesus, I think, took on the spirit of our day, we might imagine 
Jesus responding to his disciples this way, you know, when they say, well, some think you're John the Baptist and some say Elijah and some say other prophets from old, we could imagine if Jesus was, was here today with the spirit of our age, he might say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> it's whoever you want me to be. As long as you're trying your best and you're a good person, you know, I can be whoever you want me to be. Just try to be a good person. That's how people today might imagine Jesus. It's whoever you want him to be. But of course, that's not Jesus' response. It's not how Jesus viewed himself. Jesus didn't view himself as kind of this pliable piece of clay that could be formed into whoever we want him to be. Jesus was a distinct person with distinct likes, dislikes, personality, I mean, can you imagine uh, you have a friend who is uh, an extrovert who loves to go dancing at night, and you were to tell that friend, you know, I like to imagine you as an introvert who likes to stay in and watch Netflix. That friend would say, no, that's not who I am. And the same is true as Jesus. Jesus can't be conformed to who you want him to be. Jesus is someone who is distinct from your conception of him. And Jesus is challenging, maybe even surprising you today, by saying, hey, maybe your view of me needs to change. And that's what he says here, um, because he asks his disciples, who do you say I am? And that's really the question I want you to wrestle with today. Who do you say Jesus is? And Peter, it's Peter who, of course, gives the answer, the Christ of God. There Peter is saying, Jesus was more than a prophet. Jesus was greater than John the Baptist and Elijah. Jesus was the anointed one of God. And if you remember, way back when we started this series in Luke, we talked about what it meant for Jesus to be the anointed one, the Christ. Jesus was unique. Jesus was special. Jesus was the Messiah, the Messiah, the long-awaited hero of the Jewish people. So we cannot lump Jesus into the mold of just other holy men, of really um, wise, spiritual people who, who are, you know, that he's one in a long line. No, 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 Jesus is different. Jesus is unique. C.S. Lewis says it well. You, you may be familiar with Lewis's writings when he talks about uh, Jesus was either a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. Uh, some have put it, he's either mad, bad, or he's God. And the whole point is this, in Lewis's words, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. And so I, I ask you, who is Jesus? Who do you say 
Jesus is? That's the question. And here's what might surprise you. You can get the answer wrong. Let me say it again, because that's not what you'll hear in our culture. What you'll hear in our culture is your spirituality is your spirituality. What works for you works for you. But Jesus says, no, you can get the wrong answer when it comes to who I am. And that might be challenging to you and it might be surprising. But that's what this passage is showing us here today. So that's the first surprise is Jesus's identity as Messiah, Lord, God in the flesh. What's the second surprise? The second surprise is the Lord, the Messiah, uh, what, what his mission is, what he came to do. Notice there, what does he say? He charged his disciples and commanded them not to tell anyone. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, this certainly surprised the disciples because they had no conception of the hero coming to die. That's not what heroes do. Heroes come to kick butt, right? Heroes come in strength, in victory, in power. That's what heroes do. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. That's not my path. That's not what this hero has come to do. And if you were to read this story in Matthew's gospel, uh, there's lovable Peter. Gotta love Peter. Because Peter, when he hears this, we're told he takes Jesus aside and rebukes Jesus. He's I mean, Peter. He's just said who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. And Jesus is rebuking him because he cannot believe what Jesus is saying. He says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Now, uh, the youth just had a movie night, and they watched Princess Bride. And you guys, the youth, what is this character known for saying? Inconceivable, right? Vicini, great line, that repetitive line he says throughout the film. Inconceivable. Imagine he's with the disciples. You would have heard that. <laughs> he would have said it because that's what they were all saying. This doesn't make sense. This isn't what the Messiah is supposed to do. This is upside down. And yet, Jesus says this, the Son of Man must. Notice that word must. That's an important word. It's important because it's a Greek word that's connected to a lot of apocalyptic language and in, in, in writings in the scriptures that connects with the will of God and what God's will is, his plan. So Jesus is saying, I have to do this because it's a part of my Father's will. It's a part of the will of my Father to suffer. Now, we wrestle with that. A lot of Christians today have come to this place of questioning this idea. Why does Jesus have to suffer? Why does Jesus have to die on the cross? Why does he have to be killed? 
And in Jesus' mind, he is understanding, one, the Father's plan, and the scriptures of old. Jesus most likely had Isaiah 53 in mind. If you're familiar with Isaiah 53, listen to this language that was written 700 years or so before Jesus even walked on earth. Uh, Notice what Isaiah says. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah is speaking about this idea and concept of our sin and what our sin has done with our relationship with God. It has severed it. It has severed it, and there is nothing we can do to repair it. Someone else must do it. Someone else must do it. Someone else must absorb the debt. Let me tell you this story. Maybe this will help illustrate what we're talking about here. A 54-year-old woman named Shirley Digert of Teague, Texas, decided that she needed some more excitement in her life. So this grandmother of three signed up for her first lesson of jumping out of a perfectly good airplane at 13,000 feet. Now, uh, when the big day arrived, Shirley suited up for her jump, and she strapped herself to her instructor, Dave Hartsock, in order to do a tandem dive. Now, after jumping from the plane, they would have looked like this. We've got a slide here that shows you, gives you the idea of a tandem jump. Has anybody here done a tandem jump from that height? We've got a few of you. Wow, you guys are brave, brave group. So you know what that's like, okay? Now, the way it usually happens, they jump out, they free fall, and then they pull the chute, and the chute comes out, and then they look like this. We have a slide, and they gently come down and have a nice landing. Well, that didn't happen on this jump. The ripcord worked properly, but the parachute became tangled and only opened partially. I'm going to ruin this for anyone. No one else is going to want to do, and maybe that's a good idea, but um, now, of course, Skydivers carry reserve chutes for emergencies, and unfortunately, the primary chute had wrapped itself around the release point for the reserve chute. So Dave, the instructor, tried to untangle the two parachutes, and he realized he was running out of time. And later, Shirley said this. She thought to herself, this is how I'm going to die. I thought, God help us. And spiraling down towards the ground about 40 miles per hour, Dave gave Shirley this really amazing command. He said, lift up your feet. And although she didn't understand why, she just obeyed. And Dave then rotated his body under hers in order to bear the impact of the land. And Dave, uh, in that moment, chose to, to cushion Shirley's impact. 
to bear and absorb uh, the crash, basically. And Shirley said this, I could hardly believe it, he broke my fall. And Shirley walked away from the impact relatively uninjured. Now, Dave survived the fall, uh, but except for some movement in his right arm, he's paralyzed uh, now from the neck down. And here's a, here's a photo of the two of them. And in an interview with CBS News, uh, Dave said this, you know, people keep telling me it was a heroic thing to do. In my opinion, it was just the right thing to do. I mean, I was the one completely responsible for her safety. In other words, I could hear Dave saying, I must do this, right? I, I have to do this. I, I have to do this. And he chose to bear that for Shirley. And friends, that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. For each and every one of you, he's saying, I must do this for you. For you and for me. And I imagine... What Shirley must think about Dave, she must be willing to do anything for him, right? Well, that's what we see here with Jesus' mission. We see, you know, the difference between, imagine if Jesus was, you know, pronouncing his identity and saying, okay, follow me because I'm king. Follow me because you're supposed to obey. Follow me because you're supposed to submit to the one in charge. And that is one way it could have happened. But you see, our king chose to give his life for you. And so it is the king who died for you who says, follow me. It's the king who gave his life for you who says, follow me. It's the king who absorbed it for you who says follow me so it's not just we submit because he's in charge we submit because he loves us so well and we ask the question why would this king die for me that's the surprise if you have any sense of how incredible this news is Spend some time contemplating that, just as Shirley must every day when she thinks about what Dave did for her. So let's end with this third surprise. It has to do with Jesus' expectations of his disciples, of you and of me. Notice, we're not, we're not going to cover the whole section here. We don't have time. We're just going to look at this first part briefly here when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Dietrich Bonhoeffer Famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, said this, When Christ calls a man or woman, he bids him come and die. That's surprising. That's surprising. Because that's rarely in our thinking when we think about what it means to be a Christian, isn't it? That's not, we don't lead with that very often when we're trying to convince people, hey, come to Jesus, become a Christian. And yet it's Jesus who's calling us to come and die. Come and die. When Pastor Lee Eklov was a kid in the 1950s, Parker Brothers came out with a following board game. 
for Christians called going to Jerusalem. Has anybody played this? Anybody, anybody in the room seen this? I had to look it up to make sure it was real, but it, I guess it is. I saw it on, online. Now, according to Lee, <laughs> according to Lee, your playing piece wasn't a top hat or Scotty dog like Monopoly. In going to Jerusalem, you got to be a real disciple of Jesus. So you were represented by a little plastic man with a robe, a beard, some sandals, and a staff. And in order to move across the board, you looked up answers to questions in a little New Testament black Bible that came with the game. Uh, now, your pieces always started, where, where do you think they started? Bethlehem, right? Your piece started in Bethlehem, and you made stops at the Mount of Olives and Bethsaida and Capernaum, the Stormy Sea, Nazareth, Bethany. And if you rolled the dice well, you went all the way to the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But you didn't go to the cross. And you didn't go to the resurrection. There were no demons. There were no angry Pharisees. You only made your way through nice stories. It was a safe adventure, perfectly suited for the nice Christian family on a Sunday afternoon walking with Jesus. And isn't that what we all want? And Lee says this as he recalls playing the game. It never occurred to me while leaning over the card table, jiggling the dice in my hand, that traveling with Jesus wasn't meant for plastic disciples who looked up verses in a little black Bible. If you're going to walk with Jesus as his disciple in this world, you may need to change your expectations. After all, Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. And here in Luke, notice what Jesus says. Take up your cross daily. And follow me. Now, the image of a cross and taking up a cross uh, was all connected to the Roman custom of a criminal taking their cross, the bar, uh, to the site of their execution. So, Jesus is using this very vivid imagery to say, This is what it means to follow me. You need to take up that bar, you know, put it on your shoulders. And come with the expectation to die. Now, we in our day and age, we aren't, um, you, fortunately, thank, praise God, we, we are in situations where our very lives are at stake. Like some places in the world, when it means, you know, when you come to faith in Jesus in some places in the world, your life is at risk. That is not ca the case for us. But as one commentator put it, the really hard death disciples face does not come at some persecutor's hand. The really hard death is sentencing and executing our own wills, our own importance, our own agendas. This is why baptism is such a powerful image for entrance into the covenant community because it's an image of water which represent the cleansing blood of Jesus, but also the waters of judgment, death. You know, that's why it's a very powerful image for some to baptize by dunking. And, you know, that death and resurrection symbolism is very powerful. That's what it means to follow Christ. 
to die, to go under the waters, and to be raised to new life. And taking up the cross, your cross is not a, a one-time thing. They, Jesus says daily, daily, each day you wake up and you decide, you know, you put that beam right next to your bed. And each morning you get up, you heft it on your shoulders and you say, okay, Jesus, let's go. Let's do this. Another day. Another day of following you. Another day. Where I learn what it means to be your disciple. And I learn what it means to go through suffering and tribulation and persecution. And sometimes the hardest part of that is just, again, dealing with your own agenda, your own will, your own desires, your own wants. And instead, submitting to Jesus and his will for you. Now, I just briefly want to um, talk about the two ways that, that theologians have often talked about bearing your cross, taking up your cross. Um, theologians have talked about it first in a passive way, that we passively, as followers of Jesus, take up our cross. And that really has to do with this image of the shame, rejection, persecution of the crowd, so to speak. In other words, Jesus passively endured shame, right? He passively endured persecution. Um, and, and that's so often what happens when we take up our cross. Things happen to us. We don't go looking for it. We aren't eager for it. But these things happen to us because we're walking the path Jesus has called us to walk. And so, uh, you know, it could be, you know, some of the kids here, if you're in school, it could be that you choose to let others know that you're a Christian. You might be made fun of. You're not looking for that. You're not actively pursuing that. But that's just what comes with following Jesus sometimes. And so there's lots of, of ways that might be true. Maybe it's you're following Jesus and, and, and these things happen to you and, and again, you're not looking for it. But also there's an active taking up our cross, right? We actively do it, which means we choose to make certain decisions because we feel Jesus is calling us to it. William Willimon tells a powerful story of visiting a hospital. There was a couple in his church who had had a baby, and there were complications with the delivery. And the doctor uh, told this couple, your baby has Down syndrome, and I, uh, I expected this, but things were too far along before I could say for sure. And, and the mom asked, well, is the baby healthy? And the doctor said, well, that's what I wanted to talk to you about because, yes, the baby's healthy except for this condition. And I just want you to know that there's they, the baby also has this respiratory ailment. And my advice would be to take the baby off the respirator and, and maybe things will play itself out. And, and, and maybe, you, you know, you won't have to endure the, the difficulty of this child. Now... The couple said, well, that's, that's not a possibility for us. 
And the doctor said, hey, I know how you feel, uh, but you need to think about what you're doing. You already have two beautiful kids. And the stats show that babies with these risks, you know, they make it very difficult and stressful on a couple in the family. And I just want you to consider, would it be right for you to, to bring that kind of suffering into the life of your family? And at the mention of suffering, Willemann says this, at the mention of suffering, he saw the mom's face brighten as if the doctor was finally making sense. And she said to herself, quietly, suffering. And she looked at the doctor and she said, you know, we appreciate your concern, but we're Christians. God suffered for us and we will suffer for this child if we must. And the doctor looked at Willeman out, you know, when they were outside the room and whispered to him and said, you know, I hope you can talk to them. And two days later, the doctor and the pastor were watched as the couple left the hospital and they walked slowly and, and they were carrying their child and Willeman, the way he describes it, he said it was like a heavy weight and burden on their shoulders. And it was almost as if they were dragging themselves home uh, into this cold, gray March morning. And the doctor said, it will be too much for them. You should have talked them out of it. You should have helped them to understand. And Willeman, and reflecting on it, said this. But as they left, I noticed a curious look on their faces. They looked as if the burden were not too heavy at all, as if it were a privilege and a sign. They seemed borne up, as if on another's shoulders, being carried towards some high place. The doctor and I would not be going, following away. We did not understand. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your call to us. It is surprising. It is challenging. We pray for you to give us ears to hear it. And may we seriously reflect and consider what it means to take up our cross and follow you. Would you be gracious to us in that process? And show us the way. We pray in your name. Amen.